Hi, welcome to episode 26 of the Theory of the Postdoc Evolution podcast. I am Alice Dubois, the manager of the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast, and this is a recording of an online interview I carried out in June 2023. I talk with Dr. Kezaya Davison, a clinical psychologist turned biotech headhunter, about transitioning career as a researcher and options in biotech. I'm very delighted today to be talking to Dr. Kezaya Davison. And Kezaya is trained as a clinical psychologist and she's actually practiced for several years in the NHS. She's also, alongside this, have been doing some research. She's been teaching in the clinical psychology program at Queen's University. Uh, and actually throughout her studies, Kezaya, uh, and through her, her career too, she's always had a keen interest in biotech industries and especially the impact that it can have on people's lives. And that uh, led her to make a career change of her own and to uh, embark on life working with biotechs. She is now a life sciences executive search consultant in a company that is called Cranmore Executive Search. So if you want, she's a biotech headhunter and collaborates with a range of clients and companies to find them the right candidates for the roles that they have. And she helps with assessing candidates and supporting candidates through their own career journey. So Kazaya's experience is really uh, perfect for this topic because she's gone through a career transition herself. She's got a psychology background and she's helping people uh, with recruitment and with their own careers. Um, so she's got a lot to say about this. Uh, so Kazaya, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you here. Oh, thank you so much, Elise, for inviting me and for everybody for, for joining as well. I'm really honoured to, to be speaking at this. Thanks. So as I said, I'd like to start by talking about the, the career transition process itself. Um, so I was a postdoc myself and I now work with a lot of postdocs, research staff. I've got a lot of friends who have a PhD. And what I've noticed is that often research staff struggle with the idea of transitioning either to a research role in, in a different environment or to transition to a career outside of research even if they're not fully happy with their current role and current career, um, it's actually quite difficult to, to take that step. And I've noticed that um, often this is linked to the idea of having made an important personal investment towards a career step and feeling that maybe you've dedicated a lot of time, a lot of energy, some money, or made some other sacrifices like relocating uh, yourself and your family for a career path. And then it feels like moving away from that career path, maybe that all the sacrifice would have been wasted to some extent, which uh, some people call the sunk cost fallacy. Um, so could you help explain what the sunk cost fallacy is and, and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So the sunk cost fallacy is actually an economic concept, but as you sort of mentioned there, Elise, it refers to our natural tendency to feel that because we've invested X amount of resources, made sacrifices, put in time, energy to any pursuit, that we would have too, way too much to lose by considering a different option, even if staying where we are is not fulfilling us, is not serving us, or even making us miserable. It's based on really flawed thinking that actually, you know, we are forced to stay in less than ideal situations because because we just can't bear the thought of having lost the input that we've we've put in. So if it's left unchecked, then 
what impact can that have on a person and on their career? Yeah, well, at best, it can stagnate us. So, you know, gone are the days that people would have an office job and stay in the same role for 45 years and then retire. You know, pivoting and transitioning are not only common, but also expected and beneficial in many industries and especially within research. Um, really stay, not doing that can impact both our personal and professional growth. And actually, what from our experience, someone who stays too long in academia beyond where they're really benefiting from it or it's serving them, actually makes it more and more difficult to leave and to gain those roles in the other industries. You know, there's no benefit in staying within a postdoc, post, a postdoc, for example, that is not right for you for three years versus one. Um, and people seem to make that mistake or they think, oh, I'll, once I reach this point, it'll get better. You know, once I get that grant, once I, you know, become a, le a lecturer, for example. But if there's something in you that knows that this is not the path or you are very curious about other journeys, then actually, actually the best thing is, is, we can really look elsewhere and at worst it can also really impact our mental and, and physical well-being and our relationships our work-life balance as well yes definitely and i would i would relate to that when i was at the point of myself making that step of career transition um it, it was it has been a difficult time but it was good and there's absolutely no regret of having done it sometimes i wish i would have done it a bit before so uh it's really it's really good to hear um so it, it's good to know and I think people understand all of that but it can still be difficult to do so do you have any any tips for uh, people in a situation like this to to deal with it yeah absolutely I mean it's a big question and we'll probably touch on it more as, during the conversation at least as well but I think the first thing is really to try to regularly review your situation asking yourself is this still the right path for me trying to be as objective and as open as possible so really thinking how is my current career fitting in with my life you know what does my future look like within this career and can I see that being right for me now of course context matters you know for example after three bank holidays on the trot I think it's natural to be sitting in your in your work on a Tuesday just feeling like throw it all in or go in to live in the woods or something like that so we all have bad days bad weeks or even bad months but there's a difference between that and between those red flags consistently feeling that niggling feeling of I really need a change. This is not right. Or the level of stress and is not sustainable for what I, the other aspects of my life that I want. Um, so the only other thing I suppose is just to make sure that any of those niggling feelings of discontent or being unsettled are genuinely because of your job situation and not maybe trickling in from other areas of your life. So just having a really good, I suppose, examination um, if you're really struggling, speaking to someone or, you know, seeking out either career counseling or therapy can be really helpful to really help you discern where the, the root of the issues are coming from. And then from that, we can we can make action steps. Yes, thank you. That's great advice. Um, I find also that when you're moving or contemplating moving to a different role or a different sector, it can also be difficult because our own personal identity is really intertwined with our professional identity especially as as researchers um is it something that you've experienced yourself yeah very very much very much um i mean obviously you know i was in a helping profession and <clears throat> um, still am to some extent but pe many people will be able to relate to that sort of healer identity especially and how, how difficult that is but it's just as prevalent in the likes of you know scientist researcher academic persona there's a lot of 
you know, difficulty that comes with achieving that and then pride at having that status position and what other people think and, you know, having that title and on your LinkedIn, you know, that's, and that's, they're all very valid, important ways that we get a certain ego boost as well. And that real sense of pride and what we're doing with our life. But, and, you know, I remember a conversation I had with my friend when I was thinking about making a change about you know, my thoughts. And she said, because I, I can't see you doing that because you are a psychologist. Like you will always be a psychologist. You know, that is who you are. It's how you think. And I said, it is absolutely. I will always be a psychologist and I will always have that mindset wherever I go. But that's not just tied to what I'm doing in my nine to five every day, you know, being a researcher, being a scientist, having that mindset, not only will have given you skills that are adaptable, but also will be part of how you view the world at, real, at a really fundamental level. So it's remembering that there's not always that loss. It's just kind of shifting and adapting as you're, as you're going through the stages of your life. Yes, I would totally relate to that. Uh, this was... Um... When I transitioned career, this was a, a worry of mine that the losing that part. But actually, I, I still feel and identify as a researcher, and I think I always will because that's how I've been trained, and this has impacted how I think and how I approach different tasks and problems, and and I use it uh, in and apply it to any kind of aspect of my my role now, even if I'm in an administrative role. So um, the identity actually stayed with me, but I thought I was going to lose it and I didn't. So yeah, I think it's it's a myth that we think this might happen and, and it all doesn't always happen. Um, so you said that you uh, your skills as a psychologist are, are used all the time. Um, how do you actually draw on the skills that, that you developed in your previous role and, and that you've developed through your education as a clinical psychologist in your current role? What are the kind of skills you, you use or what have you noticed? Yeah, that's so many. I think the biggest one is probably how I relate to people, you know, and how I can, it gives me that ability to what we would have called formulate, which means just on a really fundamental level, understand what makes people tick, understand what has led them to their current situation, whether or not it's working for them. And if not, why? Do, you know, a values analysis, really understand what, help someone understand what is going to make them actually feel content in their life as well. Um. And then, of course, aside from that, you know, and genuinely caring about people that, you know, all of the things that you get from that, you know, dealing with pressure, working through the pandemic on a, in the front line taught me that as well. But also just that, and the same with researchers, that analytical, critical thinking, you know, you have the, everything you read, you will have that discerning ability to really, yeah, just be hypercritical, maybe a bit sceptical in a healthy way about and that you know that really will serve you even in the business world or the commercial world as well and you know people really find that skill incredibly desirable um and then of course other things you know you've had you've managed high workloads you've you know had to multitask negotiate um kind of de-escalate all, all there's such a huge amount of things i could talk about that for ages but that gives a, a summary great um so and in addition to the, the kind of sunk cost fallacy aspect and that identity shift that we've mentioned, do you think there are other factors that may prevent people, especially researchers, from considering career changes? Yeah, I mean, look, I think something to name is, you know, if we're really honest, 
being in a position to make a career shift, especially a significant career shift, does require a certain amount of privilege, of opportunity. You know, it can require a temporary risk and in terms of destabilization of your security of your job, you know, potentially a loss of resources through a pay cut that you've, you know, a pay that you've accrued or a reduction in your benefits. You know, it's stressful and it's a burden as well on you and those close to you. It definitely requires support and a certain amount of that sort of practical safety net as well and I absolutely don't underestimate that and it has to come into it come into someone's decision about how or when to make a shift but also I think in our society and I think particularly in Northern Ireland we really value and kind of glamorize having this stiff upper lip and toughing things out and just keep going just getting through things and that's come from a lot of our you know society's past experiences unfortunately that we're still healing from so we may have this really deeply, even unconscious, internalized view that we will be failing or giving up in making a change. Um, and from that, be really worried about what other people will think as well. So just being really aware of those things. And of course, then just a bit of an ego knock that it can take to, to go back to a novice after we've become an expert as well. So there's a lot of mental processes to get your head around. And I think, you know, that process really shouldn't be shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, and it's hard to, to leave the comfort zone anyway, and what you know very well for something that you don't know really how it's going to work out, but it's also quite exciting. Um, so if somebody has identified that they're not really happy in their career, that a career change will be the best thing for them, it still can be quite daunting and risky, as you just mentioned. Um, so when you're considering a career change, what, what are the different aspects you should consider when you choose actually what type of position or what type of sector you would transition to? Yeah, so I suppose really that first step is that kind of values analysis, I'll call it like what, how do you want your job or your role to make you feel? How do, what do you want it to bring to your life? Um, and then, of course, practical considerations, how, you know, how important is work-life balance? You know, at certain stages, we are going to be very career focused, be more than happy to work 60 plus hour weeks. And at others, maybe we, you know, we're focused on getting married, we've started a family or just have other life situations that are happening. And that's just not what is going to be right or, or make sense for you. So you're, that's going to affect the types of industry and the types of job roles that you're going to be looking at. Um, also, I guess just really being trying to be as clear as possible about what it is about your current role that is not is, is making you want to move. And because sometimes we can get it's called repetition compulsion and we have a natural tendency to go toward what feels familiar, even if it's not right. We say it a lot in relationships, right? People go for the same types of people who aren't right for them and it can be the same in jobs. So just just being really careful that we're not falling into that trap. Um, and then also just, you know, some of the, the sort of softer aspects of job hunting, what type of workplace culture do you need? If you've had difficult experiences there, how can you be alert to make sure you would not be treated in the same way? Um, and the other thing I'd say, this one's counterintuitive. Being future focused can be important. Yes, have some idea of what you'd like, but it can also really put you off if you're looking too far into the future, into an industry that you're not an expert in. So really just try to think about the next steps in the initial stage and what that could look like, and then think about where, where you might go down the line. Yes, a transition might be a multi-step uh, journey, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... In addition to what we've already discussed around transitions, um, when somebody has actually found a different job and they're going to be transitioning, what should they expect in terms of maybe some of the challenges, but also some of the benefits of the initial 
first few months when you transition to a different role or a different sector? It's a great question, actually. So I'll start with the challenges, I suppose. I was actually given a fantastic piece of advice by my Queen's supervisor, so really senior consultant clinical psychologist, and he you know, whenever I was sharing with him my, my thought about changing, it just said to me, I want to give you two pieces of advice. The first is to be careful of nostalgia lenses. So in the past, in the last few weeks of a job, once you've handed in your notice, you're committed to leaving. Suddenly the good parts of the job can seem really, really, really good. And maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to really miss that colleague. I'm going to really miss my coffee machine, you know, the, the car park space. What am I doing giving this up? And we start to panic. Okay. I feel like that's just a really natural an uncomfortable part of the process so just being aware of that and remembering why remembering our why for why we're putting ourselves through this big transition maybe even having it written down somewhere if you need something to ground you whenever we start to, to spiral and um, the other bit of advice was that if you have a shitty day or week in the first few months of your new job trying not to panic that we've made a massive mistake all jobs have pros and cons. You know, we, we, we've made the, cho the choice to leave what we were doing before for a really, really good reason. Um, you know, the whole point is becoming unstuck and opening doors and you're not stuck anywhere forever. You know, even if the new job is still not quite right, we've learned something from that. We can crab walk to something else, you know? <laughs> nothing's a complete waste as long as we're not obviously just constantly searching for something it's fine to, to have to make some other pivots in future so I think just just remembering that and then the benefits um are it's just really exciting it kind of renews your your passion for kind of learning and something new it can it's to some extent be a confidence boost because you see how much you have learned and how desirable your skills are outside outside for example academia and actually sometimes we can feel that undervalued especially if we've been in a role for a while so being around people who are seeing that with new eyes and coming to you for advice can can be really lovely um and then just if you if your job was affecting your well-being seeing yourself come back to yourself and having other people notice that as well and having the mental space and time to do other parts of your life see your relationships improve that's it's really there's no words for that so yeah yeah I can so relate to that um that idea of being able to start growing again because I felt when I was a postdoc I well, I moved from my PhD to a postdoc in Northern Ireland in some slightly different topic than that was I was doing before. And at the start, I was completely lost. I didn't know the methodologies. I didn't know the background very well. And then you become an expert in that topic. And then you don't realize, but you're kind of stagnating and taking a role completely outside of research really showed me that I had I could do much more than just doing research. And it enabled me to to learn new things again. And it's something that I had not noticed had been gone to some extent. I mean, not completely gone. Obviously, you always learn in research, but um, it was really nice to yes to have that that new that new journey to start. So uh, we will we'll now talk a bit about what career options actually are for researchers. And as uh, Kezia says, she works more in the life sciences sector. Um, but based on your experience working with clients and with uh, with candidates also, what do you see are the types of roles um, that can be the main options for people who have a PhD or a postdoc background? What do they what types of roles do they tend to transition to? So this is a big question. So I'm going to try and split this into different categories, if that's OK, and we can maybe come back to some of them. So I suppose the first obvious one is, you know, biotech um, research and development in industry. 
Um, so that is still within a still obviously a research role, but not within an academic setting. So it's very, very, very different. Um, within the clinical side, of course, there's you know there's different types of of uh, biotech industries from therapeutics, so like drug and treatment development, and there's bioprocessing technologies, medical device development, data analysis, and AI all of that um, and they're really exciting they're at the front line obviously of of, of healthcare and actually developing and working on on products or, or services for that and um, the one thing i will say about that is um it can be quite a big shock to the system people don't sometimes realize how different industry is from academia in terms of the number of hats that you're going to be wearing there's usually no defined um sort of job description so it's much more everyone in the company especially if it's a relatively small early stage startup which a lot of them are when we start out um you'd be expected to sort of be involved in a lot of different sides of things which is very dynamic and exciting but just comes with a different set of of pressures as well there's also, once you've been in industry and biotech for a while, you have the opportunity to leave the research and development side behind slightly if you want and move more toward commercial. Um, and that a lot of sort of scientists don't necessarily think that their background is suitable for that. But a lot of the time on the commercial, commercial side in those companies, they really want someone who's actually done the science themselves and understands it. So that can include um, technical sales, for example. So you can be, you know, demonstrate sales to clients, new business development in that way, and um, being an operations manager, being in charge of, of medical affairs and, and uh, due, due diligence kind of side of things as well. Um, so it sort of gives you hopefully a, a bit of an idea. Um, usually, though, as I said, to move into the commercial bit of biotech, they would have expected you to have industry research experience. So it's difficult to move directly from a postdoc into the, the commercial bit unless you have done some previous um, sort of business or financial type work or qualification. Um, but it's absolutely not not uh, something to not think about. And I know some people who have recently moved moved more, more into that and find it finds it suits them really well because they can still use that scientific mindset in a different way. Um, of course, if you through your research have an idea that you think you know that you really would like to develop on, you can try and set up a biotech for your own your own idea. I'm not going to that would be a whole one hour to talk about. I'm not going to go into that. There's opportunities there. You know, Queens has Cubis, which is their um, innovation strategy which they provide some initial funding to help you get off the ground um so there's always that option to be brave especially if you have people around you who you could collaborate with to do that that, that wouldn't be a solo venture at all um so staying collaborative for all of these is really important um let me see what else outside biotech then i'll touch on we can talk more about biotech if helpful later but there's a lot of what we do is also life sciences consulting um, I'm going to be really honest. When I was in Queens, I don't think I fully understood what consulting means. So I'm going to go, go give a brief overview. And sorry if you already know this. But a life sciences consultant in a company it can be a huge mega corporation that you might have heard of, like McKinsey or IQVIA, Deloitte, or it can be a much smaller boutique firm, usually based out of London. They basically provide expert advice to everything from big pharma to middle, middle and small pharma and to biotechs to support them on both their product development and on their commercial strategy, depending on where your, your, what your specialist knowledge comes in. It involves a lot of analysis and research. So you would be mapping the market on the commercial side, needing to understand and stay on top of market trends, needing to have that business acumen and people skills as well as the research skills as well. If you're interested in consulting, it's a competitive industry, very, very hard work, high turnover. 
um, and they would be looking for some evidence of, you know, that you've taken a proactive approach to gaining relevant experience before applying it because it's competitive. So that could be anything from an internship to there's some, you know, local kind of consulting firms um, to being involved in the commercial side, you know, even kind of voluntary as part of your work within um, a local biotech firm, just something to show that you've got involved in the the actual industrial side of things as well as academia. Um, but it can be a really exciting option that a lot of people with PhDs and postdocs will go, will go into, especially if you've got a really strong academic background. The other option that you might not think of, sorry, this is a very long answer, um, is sitting on the investment team of a, of a life sciences private equity firm usually a venture capital firm. Um, so they obviously, venture capitalists, private equity are the people who invest in the biotech firms in exchange for um, for equity whenever they become public or become acquired. The, for, for someone with a scientific background in that field, your role would be to um, help determine which firms the company should invest in. So you would be doing the analysis of what their idea is compared to what the market are looking for and um, understanding the science behind it within your specialism and understanding how viable it is, checking out any claims they've made. And that's where your experience really comes in, especially if you've had industry experience by that stage. Um, and you can also then sit as a what's called a board observer or a partner on the biotech firms who are invested in. So you actually help them develop their product and develop their commercial strategy, a bit like the consultant role. So those are options. There's a lot of big venture capital firms in the UK, like Oxford Science Enterprises. Um, well, there's in Europe and London, there's Softenova Partners is a really big one, that type of thing, that, just to give you an idea. But it's a whole world that I, I would never have thought of. And you do not need to have a finance background to go into private equity in the science side. So um, I hope that gives a bit of an idea. That was a really big answer. Yeah, um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot to consider. And it's interesting to hear a lot of those options that sometimes we're not really familiar with when we're in academia. So I think it's really good to hear. Um, what do you think are the main skills that employers particularly value from candidates who have uh, an academic research background? Well, so as I mentioned, the ones who tend to really stand out from the crowd are the ones who have shown involvement in that extracurricular things so like involvement in the Cuba spin out while they were doing their postdoc, even as sort of a consulting perspective or just supporting on a certain a certain aspect as part of their work and um, completing internships um, and just shows that that drive, especially. But in, in terms of the hard skills, you know, that strong research track record, of course, is great. You know, if you've had experience of gaining grants that often translate to gaining fundraising for firms. So that's fantastic. Um, teaching, training, supervision experience is great because employers are going to be asking, well, can this person replicate themselves? Can they train and support others in my team as well? Um, and then just that just that ability of, you know, evidencing that you've successfully adhered to deadlines shown the initiative before you know that innovation whether that's something like there's an aspect of your research that was not working and you researched and then implemented a change successfully you know those are fantastic examples um I'm trying to think what else there would be and then obviously up-to-date industry awareness is important as well and then on the softer skill side just being really adaptable <laughs> for all the industries I've mentioned is really important um someone who's a team player someone who's trustworthy you know who has that that experience of being someone who's really willing to muck in and help people out 
as I said, the business acumen and the negotiation abilities um, has that personal warmth, comes across really well and has a really clear why. So what is your motivation? You know, an employer is not going to be that interested if someone shows up to an interview and goes, oh, well, do you know what? I once heard about private equity and I thought I'd give it a go. You know, they're looking for people who really know their stuff and who are, are really you know to some extent dedicated to what they've chosen to try out next even if it is not for you to be permanent there um, yeah. yes and I guess related to that and, and to what employers are looking for when you've been through a PhD or a postdoc how would you recommend demonstrate demonstrating those skill sets uh, when you're applying outside of academia yeah, so I think just in your application, just making sure you really, really highlight and adapt your CV for for the industry or for the, the field you're working in. Do not submit the same CV that you would submit for an academic role because they are not gonna gonna be looking for the same skills. Of course, some of them will overlap, but it's you know, we can't assume that somebody reading it, especially if we're getting a lot of CVs, is going to infer how your skills overlap. You need to to really, really paint that out. I remember when I wrote my application for for these different types of jobs, I wrote like a cover a cover sheet where I actually put in bullet points how being a clinical psychologist and the skills that I gained as a researcher and et cetera would translate to this industry as the first thing they read before I even said what my experience was and just very briefly mentioned why I'm interested in the industry because that will be the first question that they ask an interview. You know, you some of them said to me, "You invested so much in this. Why are you making such a big change?" And it's quite. Oh, so just being prepared for that um, and knowing that you don't have to over explain yourself, you know, you don't need to tell your life story. Just 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 thinking about a reason that the, what you're looking at interests you. Um, I think there's a lot of things here <laughs> and I can share some of this information after as well. And just making sure that any experience you've mentioned, you just name what you learned from it as opposed to just listing it. Um, and yeah i think just knowing the industry and the company really well writing a brief tailored cover letter is always fantastic to stand out as well brilliant and i think that leads us to more the application aspect and once you've decided what you want to do and the type of options you've chosen um i guess first thing silly question but where is it best to look for opportunities if you're looking for a job, where should you look? So good. No, it's not a silly question at all. And people people really don't know where to, where to go for them. You know, well, someone like myself, a life sciences specialist recruiter, you know, make sure they are in the life sciences field because going to say, for example, a tech recruiter, it's not gonna, they're not going to have the same knowledge or specialist. You know, they, they have their own industry and it's a wee bit different. So life sciences recruiter, if they don't have current availabilities for you, they can provide you with invaluable market insights and advice and guidance based on your background. They can look at CVs for you. They can point you in directions as well. Um, Recruiters are often busy, so if you do message them and don't hear back, do follow up, and the, you know they'll come back to you as well. Your LinkedIn—that is how a lot of these companies will will first look at you and will potentially find you as well if they're looking for someone with your profile. So do I know a lot of people don't use LinkedIn very much, but do update it, do check it, and use it. And um, make sure you're highlighting like all of all of your skills. Um, any companies that you're interested in or potentially interested in, follow them. A lot of a lot of them will post really regular updates on what they're doing, and they'll post jobs and what they're looking for, even in advance of posting them. Um, I think the other thing that this sounds quite daunting, but I promise you, it's it's completely acceptable to do. 
being brave and actually proactively reaching out to someone who's likely to have hiring responsibilities in the firm that you're interested in. So if they say, for example, that's a Northern Irish biotech firm, going onto their LinkedIn profile, going into people and trying to find, sometimes they'll, if they're large enough, they will have a dedicated HR or talent acquisition professional in their team. Um, but if not, you know, reaching out to maybe someone who's relatively senior in the team, potentially even the CEO in some companies, um, and, and attach your CV, say, I'd love to work for you for this reason. Um, and just say, I'd love to have a chat about any potential opportunities you might have for me, even if they aren't advertising anything. A lot of them love that and they'll say, I might not have something right now, but check in with me again in four months and I think I will. And it really it really sets you apart from the crowd. So don't feel that you can't do that. Worst case scenario, they won't reply to you, you know, and that's fine. Don't take that personally. But um, yeah, so hopefully those are those are helpful. Yes, it is definitely. Um, and you personally have been helping quite a lot of people get into jobs for your clients and you help them with their applications too. Um, so what do you see are the kind of main mistakes that people with a, or an academic research background tend to make in their initial kind of CVs or cover letters or applications in general that everybody can learn from? Yeah, a really simple one, and it's a bit strange to start with this, but see overly stylized CVs, like employers hate them, we hate them, like see those fancy templates just throw them out stick black and white is fine no comic sans like I can't believe I have to say that but honestly you would be surprised I have had to go into someone's CV and change the font before because I'm like I'm not sending that <laughs> bad on it um nothing really really fancy um don't include a picture don't include your references your date of birth or your a-level results they don't no one cares <laughs> the loveliest way possible if you know if they want that they will ask for you for it um also have this myth that it has to be in one or two pages especially if you've had an extensive you know academic career it's not going to fit in that and trying to crush it in with size 8 font nobody wants that and they're not going to read it properly so just taking the space you need as long as it's not more than about three to four pages at a maximum um and just just making it having that headline at the very top that says you know a very brief summary so for example like ex highly experienced um postdoctoral researcher and teaching fellow in ex-discipline seeking a role in venture capital whatever um, and that just shows people that they've you've actually tailored the cv to what to what you're looking for um and then as i said you know in mistakes just not people who don't rewrite it who i can i get their cv and it's fantastic but i can tell that it's their academic cv and i have to go back to them and say you know you need to know the industry and what they're going to be looking for you know look at the job descriptions for it and what what they ask for and then highlight highlight in bold even the words that match that you know use the buzzwords absolutely um and i think i think that's probably probably it great thank you and uh when it comes to interviews do you have any additional uh tips or is it very similar know the industry know what to are your previous skills can uh translate or do you have any other other tips yeah, those things very much. Know the industry really well. Know the company really well. Um, definitely like do a deep dive, deep stock on their uh, LinkedIn and website. Maybe have a look at some of the people who are in a similar role in the company to see what background they came from. Do you know what? It happens. They'll see that you've stalked them on LinkedIn, but so what? <laughs> do your research. If you are working with a recruiter, they will probably offer you a prep call. What we tend to find is that as we go 
to more and more senior roles, our candidates tend to jump more and more at those prep calls. So our most senior candidates are like, absolutely, tell me everything you know. Give me every insight about the past interview processes they've done or past people they've hired. Whereas our, sometimes people who are at the more, kind of middle stage of their career, more junior, don't take it up, which is such a shame because they could have such insights and be a real ally. So take that call and come armed with all of your questions. Um, again, knowing your why, be prepared to discuss it, keeping it relevant and specific. You do not need to give them your life story from when you were born because that takes up really valuable time. So only give a summary of, you know, a really high level summary of what you've done recently and how that everything you say relate that back to the job that you're applying for. Um, and I think, yeah, I think those are the main. And then there's obviously about nerves and managing that. And I've actually got some resources on, on my LinkedIn for that as well. And can can talk to anybody if they're struggling with that. And just remembering that nerves are there to, to serve you actually and can be really helpful to help you perform as long as we're taking those deep breaths and keeping them in check. Um, so we've talked a bit about what employers see in, in researchers, but uh, we've got a question here on kind of the swift side of this. Uh, what do you feel are the most common misconceptions that postdocs or, or PhDs make about the private sector and which of them are, are correct or which of them are myths? Yeah, so that's a good question. I've heard a few different ones, actually. So some people, some of them are probably correct. Some of them are that biotech startups are absolute chaos. That's not always true. <laughs> it's not always true they are more dynamic um but especially once they get more than maybe about 10 people in size they do start to feel much more like a we could call like a grown-up firm you know and actually so there's there can be really real benefits of being a relatively early adopter and early employee in some of those companies you know you get a seat at the table build it from the ground up and help to drive who you bring in you know there's there's a lot of advantages to that if it works in your your lifestyle currently um, but yes, you will be, as I mentioned, pulled in different directions and it will not feel at all as prescriptive as sometimes academia can, where you know what you're working on when you come in every day. It's just not like that. Um, so sometimes we don't know whether or not that will suit us until we're in it. You know, so if we if we do, if we are in something that's not working, we can always, as I said, change back or change again. Um, what else about the industry have I heard? I mean, has anybody, if anyone has any misconceptions, they can definitely put them in and I can tell <laughs> in my experience whether or not they're true. There's an, another question here about um, when you're reaching towards the end of your PhD or the end of a contract, you may have quite a lot of pressure to find your next step, your next role and next job. Um, so there's going to be a lot of your time that's going to need to be dedicated to uh, writing cover letters, writing CVs, adapting them to the job descriptions, looking for jobs. Do you have any tips for managing the whole madness that comes with all of that uh, in a way that's effective? Yeah, that's such a nice, that's such a good question. That's, it is it is tough. There's no two ways about it. I kind of think you've got two options. So you know that you'll need dedicated time to focus on finishing your thesis and doing your viva. I think certainly for me with the way my brain works I need to block that out and just know that in that time I'm giving myself permission to only have that as a focus if you do that you have the option to either apply really quite early so before obviously you'll still be doing your work and potentially even doing some experiments but applying quite early and um, probably no more than about though six months before you'd be ready that's the absolute limit to start a job um 
but apply apply on that early stage okay try to get the interviews done at that stage and let them know early on when you'd be available quite often you'd be surprised they will wait you know or even if it won't be for that specific role they say we will have a role for you at that stage or waiting until after that is done which I appreciate is stressful to not have something lined up but you would probably be surprised actually at how quickly they can get people on board and get people started if they are ready to go so a lot of the time biotech firms aren't historically in amazing um, or sometimes don't have the resources to plan really far ahead of when they're going to need people in maybe you know they don't have the funding until a certain stage and then they get it and they're like go 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 get people now and um, so you'll be surprised actually once you start applying you know how quickly you if you know if you get a role how quickly they would be able to let you start um but it's, it's not it's not an ideal situation it's it is it's it's really really tough and again just asking recruiters for for advice on the market at the time as well and I suppose the other thing to say is obviously you don't necessarily need to stay for your entire contract. You know, it, people obviously there's reasons that people want to. They want to finish out their their projects and make sure they get, you know, the first authorship publication and, and all those sorts of things. But it's not always absolutely required. And if it's if it's not benefiting you any further, there's no benefit in terms of what the onward potential would be to stay in post in a postdoc for an extra year. You know, it's not it's sort of it's not it's not seen as better than having like a one-year postdoc or two-year in, in that industry unfortunately based on what we've talked about today do you have any final thought or tips either around the the transition process itself or around uh, the options or how to how to make a transition successful or um how to make an application successful for people who are in in research at the moment yeah, I, I think the first thing I just would probably say is just to acknowledge to yourself that, you know, going through this process is requires a lot of bravery and is, it can be really daunting and difficult. So just giving yourself a grace. This is the psychologist bit. It probably sounds really wishy-washy, but um, just being really kind to yourself and leaning on that support from those around you as well while you're going through that and being proud of yourself from actually engaging in that, you know, not feeling the need to over-explain or justify your decisions to anybody. And that includes current employers, colleagues, friends, family, anyone. Because, you know, there could be so many reasons that you are struggling to even articulate but you just know yourself you know and you do not need to need to feel pressure to explain that um it's I think it's the first thing I would say just really backing yourself and your confidence and how much you have to offer as well so just really just believe in yourself um and on the other bit I think just just the things that we've already we've already mentioned that there are so many options out there for you and I think I just want to emphasize that you are never stuck you know you you've worked so hard to get to this stage you've achieved so so much you've overcome a lot of a lot of odds to get here and that will never have just been wasted even if you go into something completely different even if you leave science altogether you know which which people do they what they've done is still will still always be a part of a part of them and inform their future career choices um and I think I don't want to reiterate too much I think those are I think those are the main things Yes, thank you so much, Kezaya. I think you've been fantastic. I've learned a lot and I think everything you said really resonates with me and my own experience too. So um, it can be daunting, but it can also be very rewarding uh, to, to transition to a different career. So uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed Kezaya's insight. 
If you want to hear about researchers who have transitioned careers beyond academia, look for other episodes on our podcast page at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.